Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And um, this goes right along with the idea of what your heart treasures and values is what you will pursue. Um, and there is, a, there is a moral transaction going on with God in terms of the things that we pursue within our heart and within the horizontal world. Um, if, if I treasure above all things approval and acceptance, um, then I'm devoted to those things. I'm, I, I love those things. And when I'm coveting acceptance, uh, that is an act against God. It's not just happening in a neutral space. That is a, a moral act against God. And the words that Christ uses is uh, hatred and despise. Now, when we're, when we're ministering to people, that's a hard truth. It's a, it's a scary truth to think, <coughs> today I'm going to commit violent acts against God in terms of what I treasure. So it's very, very important when we're going into the heart and helping people understand the heart that we have built a good foundation of the gospel, which we've talked about quite a bit in here, that this idea of today it is possible for me to commit hatred against God dozens of times. That's possible. Um, that reality makes the gospel all the more beautiful. Uh, because in those moments of hatred, the mercy of God is being poured out upon me, and my union with Christ is still uh, very important in that the Lord is not going to pour out his wrath against me as I am rebelling against him. And, and we're not talking about uh, huge rebellious acts. We're talking about uh, an unkind thought towards a spouse <coughs> or an irritated uh, comment to a child. Uh, so Constantly, we're in this place of worship. But w as we move into these truths on the heart, <coughs> always make sure you're checking in with people and pointing to the beauty of the gospel as we see sometimes <coughs> the mess that we truly are. Um, I think that's very important. Otherwise, people fall into a sense of condemnation or they can fall into this legalistic behavioral mindset that somehow they have to get this right in order to be okay with God. Uh, and today we're going to look more in depth at that, but um, just as a, as a side, make sure we're heavy on the work of Jesus Christ as we're working towards uh, sanctification by the grace of God. So Jesus depicts people as moral agents with active allegiances. <coughs> These allegiances influence and determine our motivations. What we treasure will master our hearts. What masters our hearts is an issue of love and hate. This love-hate dynamic is a worshiping dynamic. It is a worshiping dynamic because the ultimate object of the love-hate reality is God. He's the, he is the reference point of all reality and all that we do as people. We cannot escape our nature as perpetual worshipers. This dynamic says I will either be motivated by love for God or love for something else. And if it is the latter, then by necessity it is an also an act of hatred or war against God within our own hearts. Pretty sobering. Um, so communicating sinfully with my wife because I don't get what I want is making war against my creator. Conversely, speaking words of kindness and doing merciful deeds towards someone who has deeply offended me is to love my creator. It is to love the Lord. Um, how I respond amidst the darkness of depression is rooted in worship. Put simply, we, we are people 
to exist within an existential either and. You're either loving God or you're glorifying God or we're glorifying ourselves. Okay? David Palliser, uh, who you guys are probably familiar with, um, a leader in the biblical counseling world, he says it this way. Biblically, the heart of man is the crucible where the first great commandment plays out. Do you love, fear, trust, serve, and listen to God? Or do you love, fear, trust, serve, and listen to idols, self, other people, your own performance, mammon, Satan, and craving for love, importance, self-esteem, control, among a horde of many other things? There's a lot going on in that, in the heart. Paul Tripp uh, unpacks this idea saying this, We do not divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Every human being is a worshiper, and every act of a human being in some way expresses worship. Worship is who we are and what we do. Either I am living in proper covenantal relationship with God, or I am striking an idol covenant. So basically, Palliser and Tripp and others are formulating a theology of motivation that's rooted in hearts of worship. Um, This is something that I never got to study secular models that I went through doesn't even come onto the radar. Um, Listen to this quote uh, by C.S. Lewis as he, uh, once he became a Christian and began to examine his heart, um, he realized there was a lot going on there. He said, all my acts, desires, and thoughts were to be brought into harmony with the universal spirit when he became a Christian. For the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose, and there I found what appalled me a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled patience. My name is Legion. And he was writing in a time when uh, Freudian psychology and psychoanalysis were uh, very prevalent. Um, But his conclusion and and what the Bible illustrates about the human heart um, goes uh, strongly against the blank slate theory that really purported within uh, counseling and psychology today that we've talked about before, that we're born neutral, we're born innocent, and life kind of creates and shapes who we become. Uh, According to this understanding of the heart, uh, the heart is born with allegiance. Uh, We are born in rebellion to God. We are born in our hearts dead to the things of God until something amazing takes place. So the centrality of the heart is very important, as you all have probably heard in in biblical counseling. (coughs) So why do people feel, think, and behave the way they do? What drives them? What motivates them in one direction rather than the other? What what would we say to that? in this one area it's what do we want what do we value what do we treasure um, Herman Ritterboss a German theologian says this just as in the whole of the New Testament so in Paul as well the heart is the concept that preeminently denotes the human ego in its thinking affections aspirations decisions both in man's relationship to God and to the world surrounding him So the areas that Ritterboss, um, or the the way that he describes the human heart, it is illustrated in scripture in what we think, what we want, 
our aspirations, our decisions, and both in our relationship to God and to the world, to others. Um, <coughs> scholars point to the fact that the word heart in Scripture refers to various aspects of our makeup, including desires, longings, thoughts, and perceptions. Um, Robert Roberts, who is a philosopher, considers the heart as the seat of human functioning, responsible for th things such as wishes, cares, intentions, plans, motives, emotions, thoughts, attitudes, and imaginings. Um, Malcolm G. Uh, writes that all motivation for human action and reaction finds its seat in the human heart. Welch refers to the heart as the final cause of human functioning taught by Dr. Ed Welch. Such descriptors drawn from biblical teaching place the core of human psychology within the heart. Okay. Any thoughts on that? Absolutely. Any questions? Go ahead. Um, they're, they're pretty much the same thing. Yeah. So we look at uh, humans as, as with an inner nature and, a, and an outward nature. So it's kind of flesh, uh, the physical and the spiritual, and the heart and soul and those things. Kind of what you're saying too, though, the idea that we always do what we most want to do. Mm -hmm. Always. And so the whole idea of spiritual formation That really does matter at the end of the day when we're trying to help people. I'm, I'm a little worried that <coughs> the society and the advantage that we get mm. when we make an impact on society is that we're acknowledging our impact and mm. acknowledging <coughs> that I felt like my impact was kind of good for people <laughs> in my life. I think we, we speak the truth and then we allow people to struggle with us through the conflict. Um, much of what the scripture tells us can be very offensive. It is antithetical to the old self. It's against everything but the flesh. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we are speaking these things to someone and they get frustrated with us or they find it offensive. And I think being humble and joining them in that sense of being offended is helpful. Um, I was also offended and, and, and sometimes still offended when I am having to apply these things in the rough and tumble of reality. Yes. And so what was said is it can be very helpful when we're bringing up these difficulties is to keep the bigger story in view. Um, what's this ultimately all about? Uh, this idea of giving up treasures that aren't to God's glory is actually uh, a merciful and beautiful thing in that it's creating in us hearts that truly reflect Christ. 
Um, that's moving us towards health. That's moving us towards our, our ultimate design, keeping it with Christ in mind. And so keeping that message at play um, is very important. And, and we don't have to be biblistic. We don't just have to throw something out there and demand an automatic response of, of, of acceptance. Um, the human heart deceives us. And when we're sitting in front of people, their hearts will lie to them and their hearts will say to them, uh, what this person is telling me cannot be true about me. Uh, I'm not prideful. I, I don't worship idols. I hear that all the time. And it just takes patience on our part to do a good job of explaining what we mean uh, by that. Right. Sorry to butt in again. No, go ahead. I, I think it's an important thing to remember that we're praying here because things are away from God that are exalted here on earth. Yes. And sanctification And, and that can be very powerful in a conversation to uh, acknowledge how painful this is and how much this hurts. Um, and let, let people even talk about that pain and, and what it hurts. And how are, they, how are they speaking to God? And what psalms can we point them to to show that the psalmist uh, struggled as well? Uh, a very powerful uh, illustration of that, I may have already mentioned it, is Lamentations 2 where Jeremiah is in the pit waiting to die, and it's bad. <laughs> and he's not, uh, he's not just speaking nice little words of prayer. He, he is in agony and feels as though God is putting arrows through his kidneys. I mean, it's, it's a really graphic illustration of, of suffering. Um, but the grace of the Lord uh, shines very brightly in about verse 20. And he says, then I remembered this, and I had hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. So the Lord helped Jeremiah move into this place of worship, but it wasn't without pain and it wasn't without struggle. And we need to, we need to uh, deal with people the way the Bible illustrates people. And these wonderful prophets, Prophet Jeremiah was a man of God, but there he is struggling and we need to allow that. Um, moving to today's outline just really going deeper into this conversation. Um, I want to reemphasize something that can be encouraging to the helper, but it can also be encouraging to the people that we are, we are serving. We've, we've talked about this briefly, but Ephesians 2, 1 through 8, for me as a counselor, uh, is, a, is a bedrock section of Scripture to help me help others, especially when we get into really difficult, complex issues that just are not going away very quickly. And there's a lot of wrestling and there's a lot of going two steps backwards and one step forward. And it's like, what is going on here? For me to come back to, if I'm dealing with a Christian, just to come back to Ephesians 2 and be reminded of, of what this person once was, dead in their trespasses and sins, didn't have the desires for God, really was incapable of desires for a holy God in and of themselves. And this beautiful miracle upon God alone extending his mercy. And he 
in extending that mercy, resurrected this dead heart to life. And that's the greatest miracle of change, I think, that a human is ever going to experience. Uh, it's truly miraculous that we would all just be wandering in this universe without care for God, except that God pursued us and won us over by his grace. And so if he intentionally did that, and if he had the power to do that, then we have nothing to fear in this process of change that can sometimes feel hopeless, that can sometimes feel overwhelming. Um, so always coming back to, you know, if the Lord has done this, then he is, he is up to something, and he completes his work. He, he is at work in every detail, and what we might perceive as a major left turn that is just should have never happened in the, the process come back to that he's, he's ultimately presiding over all of this. It's not us. It's not our, our, our nicely uh, orchestrated formulas of counsel. Um, it's not five steps and, and then we've made it. Uh, it's up and down, left and right. We just have to be reminded who started the process of change in this person, God. And God is presiding over it even as, as we speak. And then um, Galatians 5, 16, and 17, which John just mentioned, um, helps us again. We have to keep in mind that when we're, when we're visiting with people, this is going on in their hearts, even during the conversation. Um, verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So there it is. And so when you see that offensiveness, should it appear in a conversation, or if you see resistance to godly counsel, um, this is what's going on. Uh, bottom line, there's a war. And the person that you're, you're talking to is in the midst of uh, profound battle and it's our job to walk beside them and help encourage them and equip them with truth to fight that battle well okay um, we have a constant temptation to give ourselves back to the old dominance of sin when we submit to such temptations we turn upon ourselves a further danger is that sin tends to beget sin um, and this is this is a good um, Jay Adams who is the guy in the 1970s who kind of birthed the modern biblical counseling movement, um, he had this concept that he called habituation, which simply means that sin, or really we are creatures of habit. He often gives the illustration, what if we had to relearn to tie our shoes every time? Um, God wired us in such a way that, that we develop habits. And sin can be habitual. And the more a person gives themselves over to sin, the more that sin can begin to um, uh, snag them in their, in their walk. As Paul says, an unrepentant life given over to any of the sins uh, that he mentions demonstrates that we are not true believers and we will not inherit the kingdom of God. So while the believer is no longer a citizen of the old creation, no longer ruled by the flesh, he or she must still contend with temptations that linger from his or her former life. The will of man remains susceptible to the deceit of the crucified old self, and it is here the motivation to serve God or something else unfolds. Okay? So we want to make sure 
that we we are living in and dealing with believers in light of Paul's uh, declaration in 2 Corinthians 5.17 where he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. And these are, this is very important, what we're about to cover here. We are new creations. And then in Colossians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay. We must continually emphasize the fact that even though the war with sin rages on, it rages within the safety of God's promises to the people that we're working with. For example, the promise that they are now and forever delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Their spiritual geography is changed. In other words, they no longer reside in in, uh, the domain of darkness, in the kingdom of darkness. That's not where they live anymore. No matter what their lives look like ultimately as long as they're true professing Christians. The promise that in salvation they are set apart uh, as the new creation and possess a new self created in the image of God. Okay. So sometimes people get into this um, toggle switch mentality that sometimes the flesh is is in control and sometimes the spirit is in control. And we want to we help them. It, it's a very... We just read in Galatians, there's a war going on, right? But the, but the, do, the power of sin that once dominated that person has been uh, eradicated. Uh, the, a person that is a believer is not going to be dominated by sin as a Christian as sin dominated them as an unbeliever. The, the power of sin has been broken. Um, so though the war rages on, sin as it once did in Ephesians 2 type of sin, cannot dominate in that way again. That's a powerful promise because when, when a person is fighting sin, they feel like they're fighting it on the same turf as the unbeliever. Okay? But they're not fighting it on the same turf. They are citizens of a, of a new kingdom. And the power of sin that once ruled them has been broken. Okay? And that, so there's a promise there. Um, Here's Romans 6, 17. This is another declaration of Paul. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Um, John Murray says this regarding this passage. Paul is not simply giving an exhortation. He's not saying keep keep trying and sin is is not going to have dominion over you. He is making... a a statement that is beyond dispute to the effect that sin will not have dominion over the person who is under grace. He gives exhortation in very similar language in the context, but here he is making an emphatic negation. Sin will not have dominion. Thoughts, questions? This 
this is a, a tough one because if you see Galatians where there's a war inside, you see lies that uh, often at believers who are, I just can't get out of that addictive struggle. Um, but they're not struggling because the old domain of sin is ruling their life. They're struggling in a different context. Uh, and they're giving themselves over to a defeated enemy is a one way to look at it. Mm-hmm. They're giving themselves over to a weaker enemy. Um, and that's, this is a good promise for people that the, what you're fighting, uh, Christ has defeated. And Christ living in you has the power to ultimately overcome that. Uh, but this, this again, it goes into this thing of sanctification. Sanctification is painful. Sanctification is hard. And we even have to believe that in the midst of that kind of struggle, uh, God is up to something that is good, that is holy. Um, very often it's the person with difficult addictions uh, that bless me most because they're so desperate for God alone. And they really understand, I, I'm in deep trouble. If I don't have Christ, I'm in deep trouble. But we don't want them to just stay there. We want to encourage them that this thing that feels like it has power over you doesn't. Um, and we have to trust God with his timing in terms of should he ever bring victory in this for you in terms of just your day-to-day issue. Uh, so it comes back to trusting God in the struggle. But we don't want to talk to them as though they have the same struggle as an unbeliever would have who's, who's a Christian. They are new creations. They have been given a new heart with new affections. They have the Holy Spirit living in them. It's not uh, a Star Wars battle of is it going to be Darth Vader that wins or is it going to be Yoda that wins? <laughs> not that kind of thing. Uh, the battle has been won. Uh, and we have to walk in the victory of Christ over sin and, and fight the weak. guys, Darwin is, he helped me on this book, and he really brought this to the forefront for me, and it really helped. Um, Because he and I both believe that the process of change is a process of safety. We're so results-oriented in our culture, we just want to see the final end. Um, So, if I believe that sin still has dominion over me, then that's a lie of my heart. And so I have to help people recognize when you're thinking that, you know, after you've promised today you would not uh, binge on alcohol and it's the next morning and you feel terrible and you, you want to believe this sin still has do- dominion over me, uh, how are we going to deal with that belief system? And how are we going to anchor in faith into what the Bible tells me over and above my experience? Uh, my final... Epistemology is scripture, not experience. Uh, the end of the day, so it becomes a, it becomes a battle of faith, and it becomes a battle of asking the Lord to increase our faith. and And this doesn't negate that that we should we should fight this war with 
with great uh, diligence. When, when Jesus says, if your eye's causing you to sin, pluck it out, there's a violence in the battle, right? doesn't literally mean do that, but the image is be violent against your sin. So we don't want to diminish that, but we also, when, when there's a struggle, there's something about a growing faith in the struggle when it's not just going away. So it is hard. Um, it can be confusing, but there is something amazing to say, even though it feels like this, uh, this sin is still has dominion over me, according to the sacred truth of the word of God, that is not true. And today I will anchor into the fact that I am a, a person that has been given a new heart. I am a new creation. I am in the kingdom of God, no matter what my life looked like yesterday. And that God is more faithful to get me through this than I will ever be in my life. And just continually having that conversation with myself and with others. You know, by the word of God, you said that, but it seemed to me like one of the big aspects here is before we're saved, we nothing we are do can please God mm. from an ultimate standpoint because yeah. we're not humble before Him. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, everything is more driven from our best of us. So when we talk about you're getting into the intricacies of human change um, because there uh, there is something profound and it's, it's right back at Ephesians 2 where the very fact we want to not sin against God that when you talk about change that's a big change from what I once was that's a good picture of old domain to new domain kingdom of darkness kingdom of light just this beautiful God glorifying desire sin against God. That, that may be where we start. Uh, when 
We are blessed by that promise in ways that unbelievers are not. Mm-hmm. And I think I think Christians need to sometimes ask, are we are we truly considering the value of that, the beauty of that, the the mercy that that drives that, the grace that drives that. And and in the midst of the sin or or after the sin, like with these these more taboo sins like addiction, um, how are we relating to God in all of this? Are we brokenhearted? Hope, we hope so. We hope that we're experiencing godly grief and all of that. But are we also talking to God as our Savior? Are we talking to him as a merciful Father who sees us in the struggle and continues to pursue us and continues to pour out his grace upon us? And are, we, are we helping people experience his love through the difficulties that we face? That's our dependence. That's our faith. Um, and, yeah, we, we never just, and, and that wasn't the intent. The promises are there, but it's always going to God to help us believe the promise and also asking him for the strength to overcome these things. I mean, the, the, the promises should always point us to God. We're not, um, we're not Buddhists that just have nice proverbs to live by. We we have these beautiful promises that uh, we can't live out in our own strength. So really, the promises should drive us to the power of God. What I can promise a person, which in, as a counselor you're never supposed to do that, but <laughs> but it, but we can, we we can promise that Christ is sufficient in your weakness. But we can also we don't stop there. Okay, that's justification. That's beautiful, and we want to to relish that and 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 uh, live in that. But I can also promise that God is committed to changing you. He's committed. He's more committed. I want you to change. If I could wave a wand, I would take all your problems away, but that's not what God wants. So he has a different path for you, and he's more committed than either of us to get you where he wants you to be. And I can also promise you this, that at, there will come a day when all of this will be over. You will have no struggle. You will have no sin. Uh, you will, your heart will be 
engulfed with a desire to glorify God alone at all times. And that's what NCA Coastal Church is. So we can, we can try, and, and this, even this idea of God is committed to changing you. He's more committed than you are. That's, that's powerful. And that's pointing me to God. And again, um, perfection can become an idol. I'm going to say something that could, might sound controversial. I'm not trying to be controversial, but sobriety can become an idol. I mean, I see people living for the next token of, of sobriety, and, and I celebrate with them if that happens, but that's not what I want their goal to be. I want their goal to be Christ and pursuing holiness for the glory of God uh, to become more what we're called to be as people. Yes, ma'am. Anything can, yes. Mm-hmm. Anything. How should it be? Should it be seen as, um, I guess, the awkwardness that, you know, you're trying to um, help this person become a better person and they have people in their lives that are saying, well, if you were a believer, it would just go away. Or if you just want to stop, it would stop. Or if you just want to be honest, Let me, let me give you some passages and then I'll tell you. So I would, I would go to Matthew 6, 24. I would go to Matthew 15, 16. Um, I would go to Romans 8, 5 through 8. Um, I would go to Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Um, Colossians 3, 5. Galatians 5.16 that we just read. Um, if it's a relational issue, I'd go to Jer- uh, James 4, 1 through 8. And I might go to Romans chapter 7, verses 14 and on. Um, every single one of those passages tells us that we're in a war. And that something's going on and that the Christian life is not robotic. How demeaning would that be as human, human beings? We are, we are creatures, and we relate to God as a person. And there is just biblical evidence that goes against everything that you just said in terms of this formulaic faith. Now, I don't want to take optimism away from the journey because it's very optimistic that I have a Savior that has died for me and has gotten it right for me and it, a Holy Spirit that is empowering me to become all that God has called me to be. We have the most optimistic message there is, it's, but it's it's not practical. It's real. Yeah. Okay. Um, the condition prior to being granted a new heart, just very quickly, um, this is just reaffirming something we've already stated, but I just wanted to read a few quotes, just wonderful quotes from some good theologians. Uh, Martin Luther Okay, for once it is granted and settled that free will has lost its freedom and is bound in the service of sin and can will no good. I can gather nothing from these words but that free will is an empty term whose reality is lost. A lost freedom, to my way of speaking, is not freedom at all, 
And to give the name of freedom to something that has no freedom is to apply to it a term that is empty of meaning. So, I mean, that's bombastic in our culture to say, to question the, our cultural understanding of free will. Uh, Luther, this is from his uh, book, The Bondage of the Will, is making the case the will is enslaved by what it wants, which is what we've been saying here. And if the will is enslaved by desire, is it truly living in this neutral arena of freedom? And we would say no, that the will is enslaved and moving in the direction of its desire. John Owen, wonderful Puritan, um, there is the heart. This is the practical principle of operation and so includes the will also. Light is received by the mind, applied by the understanding, used by the heart. On this, says the apostle, there is blindness. It is not mere ignorance, but a stubborn resistance of light and conviction, a hardness whence it rejects the impressions of divine truth. There is no more disposition in natural men to receive saving knowledge than there is in darkness itself to receive light. The mind remains a capable subject to receive it, but has no active power or disposition towards it. And therefore, when God is pleased to give us a new ability to understand spiritual things aright, he is said to give us a new faculty because of the utter disability of our minds naturally to receive them. Just basically reaffirming what, what we've said. And then finally, Thomas Chalmers, we have already affirmed how impossible it were for the heart by any innate elasticity of its own to cast the world away from it and thus reduce itself to a, to a wilderness. The heart is not so constituted, and the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Beautiful. Okay. And this is what our God is committed to doing in us. Okay. Thomas Chalmers, and the book is the, it's a very short little book, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's this, no, he, he's a pretty old writer. You can get it for free online. Yeah, it's a book. A new affection. And it's this idea what, that we started with, what we treasure is what we will, it, it will guide everything. It's what we'll do. It's what will guide our words, our thinking. So it's not about behavioral modification. It's about asking God to give us new affections that glorify him, that drive out the old. So we'll continue with this conversation uh, next week. This is an embarrassing question, but does anyone know how, how long this class is called? <laughs> okay, perfect. I thought it was just, just a thought for now. Yeah, it works on that. Okay. All right. <laughs> that works. <laughs> but, for, but for fall, we're going through December 5th. Okay, very good. <laughs> Sometimes sin causes depression, but I wouldn't say all of them. No way. So I, I would could be. I, I try to uh, use the categories of both sin and substance. So I, I've counseled people with profound depression who love Christ and walk with him um, daily, and they just they operate in a different place. So it becomes how to, 
okay, what affection should you be living by as you're responding to your customer? Mm-hmm. Just comes back down to that. And so today we've really emphasized how sin exposes what we treasure. Suffering also exposes what we treasure. So depression will expose what I treasure. And that becomes an issue as it begins to multiply. You guys are wonderful. Let me pray. All right. Father, thank you for the people in this class. They make it uh, a joy to come here every Sunday. So engaged, so uh, insightful to me just pray that you would bless them, bless us all in this journey of sanctification, that we would rely upon nothing but you and your grace, and that God, we pray that you would give us affections that would drive away those things that that cause us to sin. May you be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.